Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. Each of the conversations that I've had the privilege of participating in on this podcast have really been an honor for me. They've all sparked curiosity. They've revealed pieces of the puzzle to life for me. Some of the conversations have even dumped me into a mess of misunderstanding, while others have interrogated me so deeply that I am utterly shook and changed. This next conversation is just that, a conversation that did what they're meant to do. It left me changed. Back when I first started this podcast, I told you that I was inspired by Theodore Zeldin. He wrote a mini treatise called Conversation, How Talk Can Change Our Lives. This is the book that inspired me more than any other literary work or academic work or philosophy ever did. Bringing back the art of conversation is among one of my only life goals for myself. Theodore Zeldin says, Conversation is a meeting of minds with different memories and habits. When minds meet, they don't just exchange facts. They transform them, reshape them, draw different implications from them, engage them in new trains of thought. Conversation doesn't just reshuffle the cards. It creates new cards. He goes on to say that what matters most in a conversation is that you are willing to think for yourself and say what you think. There's one particular statement that Zeldin declared that really stuck with me. It penetrated my inner being, and it forced me to see how important otherness really is and why. He says this, For about a century now, we have been brought up to believe in the virtues of introspection. But asking the same old question, who am I, cannot get us much further. However fascinating one may think one is, there is a limit to what one can know about oneself. Other people are infinitely more interesting, have infinitely more to say. I took that to mean that I can't really know who I am until I know who others are. And what that shows me is not only who I am, but who I am not. Conversation isn't just about understanding who we are. It's also about how we connect. Conversation is intimate, and many times even our most intimate relationships suffer from deficient conversations. Zeldin says, Our private conversations do make a difference to the world. A relationship may start chemically or romantically, but conversation adds something infinitely precious to it. Having one's ideas challenged and transmuted by verbal intercourse makes one aware of how much one owes to others, how much a partner can contribute to one's intellectual, moral, and emotional development, though one remains a separate, unique person. It is in private conversation that one can best learn how to accept criticism. Now, I realize that the conversations I have on this podcast aren't necessarily private by any means. They are public, obviously. But the goal is to be as authentic as possible. And I'd like to believe that each guest is authentic as they are comfortable as being without compromising themselves or revealing more than they are ready to reveal. 
The goal, however, is to show that conversations can be had by people who don't agree on exactly every method or concept or practice. It's to show that politics and religion, belief, philosophy, and culture, they don't have to divide us, but rather these values and virtues of ours can unite us. I really believe that we all want the same things. We want health, happiness, and to be understood. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. And to maintain health, to sustain happiness or joy or whatever you call that, and to be understood, we have to utilize communication. And there are all types of ways that we can communicate. And most of us depend on social media to communicate. But conversation, personal, face-to-face conversation, is by far the most spiritual, the most connective, and the most authentic way to do so. Now, obviously, my podcast isn't always face-to-face, although I have traveled on location to interview, and my husband often joins me, and he's sitting right next to me. But at least the podcast allows you to hear two people who don't always have the same ideas and the same beliefs have a dialogue with one another where we're truly trying to understand each other. And while we're trying to understand one another, we probably end up feeling like we were a little bit more understood. Theodore Zeldin says that conversation is always an experiment whose results are never guaranteed. It involves risk. It's an adventure in which we agree to cook the world together and make it taste less bitter. I love the way he words things. It's poetic. And conversations are a form of poetry. And more than that, conversation requires a surrender to the unknown. On this podcast, although I try to focus on a few talking points, especially when I have an author or another podcaster, I I try to make sure that I talk about the things that are central to them and their focus. But most of the time, I really do try to allow the conversations to just organically develop. And more than that, I want to listen to others. And I do like to talk. I mean, I do have a podcast. But I want to listen to others. I want others to have an opportunity to be heard. And more than that, I want to learn from others. I love learning. I am a seeker of knowledge. I am a philosopher. I love understanding things. I love understanding people. Because for a long time, I didn't like people. And I didn't know why I didn't like people. But I think that's because I didn't like myself. And that was probably because I didn't understand myself. And I did, I have spent a lot of time secluded and isolated and insulated and introverted. And that does make it harder for me to understand myself, especially if I can't bounce myself off somebody else, especially if I can't see a reflection of myself in somebody else. It really makes you feel alone. And so through others, I learn. And maybe we think that we only need to learn if we're going to school. We always need to be learning as much as we can. We have infinite space in our brains to do so. It teaches us. It teaches us patience. It teaches us how to look at a different view. It can break down barriers. It can bust through walls. It helps us. Uh, We are speaking creatures. There has to be a reason why we have language, why we speak. And conversation is that for me. Each and every conversation that I have had leaves a mark. It impacts me. If you ask me what I'm grateful for, other than the obvious, my husband, my kids, so my family, my health, my life, I am grateful for conversation. I am grateful for language. I am grateful that we have the ability to communicate 
what we think, what we feel. I'm grateful to each and every guest I've had on this podcast. For me, in a weird analogy, each conversation is like a a fallen cottonwood seed. Now, cottonwoods in my yard are one of the biggest nuisances. And that's because they grow so furiously fast that if we're not diligent about plucking out these tender little trailings, they'll take over our entire yard. They're huge, tall, sturdy, hard, heavy trees. And the reality is, is we don't want a lot of these trees growing too close to the house because if there's a tornado, if there are heavy winds, the thing is a big tree and it'll knock our entire house out. And they, but our minds have like infinite space. Now, I haven't fact checked that, but I feel like I never run out of room. Our brain is a crazy supercomputer. I don't even know how it works. But what I do know is I've never felt like I can't continue to learn. And each guest is like a cottonwood seed for me. And what happens is is these, these seeds grow into such big, sturdy, beautiful trees in my brain. And they branch out everywhere. And it's like... I can't climb the branches fast enough to jump on a new thought. Needless to say, these conversations for me, uh, they spring life of thought within my mind. And I also have an affinity for trees, so you can see why I like this analogy. I love trees. Everything reminds me of trees, the way trees grow. Conversations can cause thoughts to grow. Conversations are just are, are beautiful growths. Let's put it that way. Zeldin also says that a real conversation catches fire. Conversation changes the way you see about the world, and it even changes the world. And they change the way you see the world because they branch and continue to extend upward, and they give you a better view and a wider view and a more expansive view. Conversation stimulates me, so call me a sapiosexual if you'd like. It's a tantalizing form of intercourse, and for me, I think it allows us to strip back layers and really reveal the naked other. Not only that, but my attention penetrates the other. The other's attention penetrates me. It's one of the most intimate acts that we can participate in that will always include the presence of God, if it's a true conversation. This is how we come to know someone, and when we come to know someone, we can understand them, and we can love them, and... That's the best part about sharing in conversations with people. You can come to understand somebody that you might have not understood before. And I've had a lot of guests on this show whom have said things or done things that I didn't understand. And then after having a conversation, I, I, I could see where they were coming from. And I think if we all had a glimpse into being able to see where we're coming from, we might not be so mean to each other. We, we might not be so toxic. We, we might not be so jealous and angry. We, we might let go of the contempt we have for one another. Zeldin says conversation puts you face-to-face with individuals and all of their human complexity. It's a humbling experience, though. Which, which makes one conscious of the enormous difficulty of living in peace when there is so much injustice, but which also gives one great hope every time one succeeds in having a conversation, which establishes a sense of common humanity, a mutual respect. After such conversations, one can never be the same person again. I, and, and I can attest to that. Every conversation leaves me changed. 
every conversation gives me a new glimpse of the world that I didn't know existed. And I'm grateful to know that it existed, even if it's an ugly view, even if it's a more beautiful view than I could ever imagine for myself. Conversation shows us everything we can't see about another. And once we can see that about another, then we can see it in ourselves. And that's when we're never the same. We're changed. This conversation with Sam Kratzer really did change me. He brought up a lot of really interesting things that I just had never thought about. As I am recording this, I'm coming off of a conversation that I had with Sam uh, just recently. And I think we recorded this about a month ago. But um, he continues to make me think. He continues to challenge me. And he also reflects me. And I think I might reflect him. And I think that's what we're supposed to see in other people, a reflection of ourselves. Now, that reflection will sometimes reveal things we don't really like about ourselves. But other times, it can reflect things we love about ourselves. And maybe that's what we fall in love with. We fall in love with ourselves. Because I think ultimately, our evolution, our transformation, our journey is supposed to lead us to see that we're all one. And this conversation helped me get closer to seeing that we are all one. Sam, all I can say is thank you for this. And I can't wait to have another conversation with you. Listeners, I ask you to compassionately consider the perspective of my dear, dear friend, Sam Kratzer. Enjoy the show. And Good. we applied for the, the bailout, you know. Nice. And um, I assume you'll get it. Yeah. Well, we applied for the payroll bailout just to make sure, sure. that we have funding to pay our employees because we have employees mm-hmm. and want to take care of them. But, you know, we are kind of right. like, my husband especially is kind of like, you know, I'm just taking the money. Like, yeah. I'm not yeah. going to fight it anymore. Like, we could stand up on principle and be like, we're never going to be able to pay for this. We're just going to print money. But right now, I'm like, I don't care. Like, people are freaking out. Yeah, there's a, it's it's a time when it's a little harder to be more libertarian, right? <laughs> That's what I've noticed is people shifting a lot more towards just taking taking what's, what's handed. Yeah. But I mean, I'm certainly husband. excited for the check to hit my bank account. I know. I heard by Wednesday. So, you know, we've yeah, been checking every so. day. Like, is it there? Is it there? Is yeah, it there? I probably checked like seven times today. Yeah, I was supposed to be working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, but, we just got a tax, our tax refund too. At oh, like, yeah, sure. Right at the end of March. And so that was really nice. It was a really big tax return. I wasn't expecting it because nice. we usually pay in. And sure. so I was like, paying down all my debt. I'm paying off PayPal. Yeah. PayPal's clear. And, <laughs> and so now we got this coming and that's the first thing I want to do is just throw it towards that and just at least minimize yeah. that. So, but yeah, I mean, people are, I know other people are affected, so we're not, we're out in the middle of nowhere in a bubble shielded right now. Sure. So, but yeah, so you're home's... working from home. Yeah. Becky and I are both working from, well, we're working from our bedroom. We just set up a couple of desks in here 
And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a little weird because some people can work in their living rooms, right? But we have babies running around who would not allow that to happen. So there's a little bit of cabin fever, but it's, it's all right. Yeah, but you, do you have a yard? Uh, no, we live in an apartment. Oh. Uh, so, so there is like a nice sort of field outside that we can take them out to play in. That's good. Uh, with a playground. But I mean, right now it's super snowy. Yeah. What is that? What just happened? Know. It was what, know. 70 degrees and then we got dumped on. Yeah. I'm just going to close the window. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, <sighs> uh, mm. So. How's Oliver? Oh my God. He's so good. You know, what's funny is we think he's really big because we've just seen him grow. And then Lily, yeah. no, he's such a midget compared to babies, his normal gestation age. And I'm like, really? He just seems. It, it, it can take up to, to two years old, though, to, to fully catch up. Yeah. But he's a joy. I love it. Being grandma is so different. And yeah. But I miss babies, you know, because my twins are yeah. eight and a half and. Man. Yeah, I don't. I miss babies, and my husband got fixed, and I think we regret that a lot from time to time. We're like, I'm a nice to have one. A more. But I mean, yeah. we had five to total, so it's like it seems like a handful enough. Yeah, it is. It is. But yeah, being in grandma is fun, and I love that part the most That's because great. I'm not all the way responsible. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you can go home. I don't have to deal with the... Uh, well, the, he oops. lives here, so... Oh. Yeah, my, well, my daughter and go upstairs her, then or something. Yeah, daddy and mommy live here with baby, and yeah. That's great. It's okay, though. I like it. <laughs> my yeah, grandson's right here. Can't beat that. Mm-mm. And they say that grandmas that are in your lives more directly can actually help make you a smarter kid, so I'm like, let's do it! I will, I'll teach him some philosophy. Come yeah. on, let's go. My mom was just here today watching our kids while we worked. So. Yeah, grandma's influence are great. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So we were, it? yeah, moral relativism. So I was yeah. trying to read back where this idea even came up, and I can't find the post. I, I don't remember uh, what we were going back and forth about. And you brought up this term. And I, was I think, well, it's, it comes up a ton, oh, right? Yeah. Not that people realize it's coming up, but um, I mean, you hear people say things like, we just agree to disagree. Uh, and what do they mean by that? Well, sometimes you mean it's not going to go anywhere, but sometimes people mean something like what I think is true is heavily dependent on perspective. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's, I'd say, a loose definition of moral relativism. The easiest way to define relativism is kind of, well, it's a typical thing that people do in philosophy, which is to define something by what it isn't. Um, yeah. What is realism. Realism generally is, is kind of the oldest way of thinking about um, what kinds of things are true and what kinds of things are false and, and why. And it's, it's this idea that certain things exist or have properties independent of perception, right? That there are certain things that are true or false and it doesn't matter what you think about it, uh, they're true or false anyway. Mm-hmm. And relativism tends to be sort of the rejection of that. So to say, no, it really does depend on perspective or culture um, or something else that is more subjective. 
then just looking at the way the world is and saying, do my beliefs match up to that? That's kind of where we're starting, I think. Yeah. And so I hadn't realized that there were, I guess, so many distinctions, subcategories. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I took probably like basic intro to philosophy, Greek sure. philosophy and this philosophy and that philosophy, but I never really stayed on track with any of them and dove in, but understand the general concept of a lot of the popular ones. Yeah. And when you brought that term up, it made me start to think, oh, wait a minute. I've been tossing back objectivity and subjectivity so much and so much of the work that I'm doing too. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, and so, yeah, when you kind of put it to me like that, I was like, well, I don't really know now. Wait a minute. And not a lot of people even do that. Not a lot of people right. go, oh, well, this, this back and forth we just had, this is just because my philosophy leans more towards this relativistic idea and yours is more mm -hmm. idealistic. And so... I think if you don't get to that point, then you're missing everything underlying the disagreement. And you're just going to continue to disagree instead of understanding. Yes. Final disagreement is, which is just one or two very basic things. Yeah. And so how do you see it? Where do you see it played out the most? Like just in your own observations and what you interact with, where do you see this to be like, if we can just, I don't know, give listeners examples of what it looks like, first of all, where do you see it the most and what kind of discussions is it more in political discussions that you see yeah it? it tends to be it tends to be it tends to only really show up concretely in the moral realm right there's not a whole lot of people that are going around talking about whether mathematical truths you know are, are relative or absolute and yeah. just as a proviso when I use the word absolute, anytime in this conversation, I'm not referring to something being black and white or extreme. Uh, it's just the, the alternative to relative, right? Like existing independently of belief. So you can be, truth can be relative or absolute. Most people agree that things like math are absolute, mm -hmm. say, uh, or do you think you're in that boat? I'm um, yeah, I, I, math is absolute. And right. I always try and say, and math is like just a different... I don't even know, form of logic and application. A different so, kind of truth. Yeah, exactly. Right? But a lot of people are more willing to say that something like a moral statement could be true or false dependent on perspective, mm -hmm. rather than there being something about the world that you could compare your beliefs to and say, does it match up? That's uh, The technical term for that is the correspondence theory of truth. We don't need to use the technical term, but... The idea is that there are properties of the world, and if you have these beliefs, you can look at them, look at the world, and say, does it match up? And if it corresponds, it's true, and if it doesn't, it's false. Now, whether you actually have the mental access to that is a different question, but that's, that's kind of where we're sitting in terms of the background. And politics and religion are the big ones that come up for me in terms of relativism. Are you familiar with Jonathan Haidt? Yes. Yeah, so uh, things like, uh, so his moral foundations theory, uh, he, there's a couple TED Talks about it, several lectures. Um, the Righteous Mind, I think he uses. Yep. yep. Yeah, talks about these five to seven categories that, that people consider to be moral categories. I think it's uh, off the top of my head, there's care versus harm, there's uh, fairness, uh, respect for authority, in-group loyalty, purity, and then a couple different kinds of freedom. 
uh, that register pretty highly for libertarians. Now that's not, I wouldn't say that Jonathan Haidt would say that moral truths are absolutely, or that they're relative, right? But this is a way that I see a form of relativity kind of play out. We get people, uh, this was a question I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> Good, those are the best kinds. Yeah. You ever see those coexist stickers? Yes. Yeah, okay, this is my actual answer. <laughs> uh, so specifically in the area of religion, you get this uh, notion thrown around sometimes that like all religious beliefs provide it. Sometimes you get the added provided that they are nonviolent, right? Are inherently valid mm -hmm. can be true for that person. I see people say that a lot. And what that says to me is that that person believes that the truth or falsity of the statements that somebody that has religious beliefs is advancing is dependent on either the sincerity of their belief or, um, you know, the community that they're involved in. It might be constructed, truth might be constructed by community, um, by consensus, uh, by societal norms. You'll get people talking about the different ethical principles that are inherent in cultures, right? Like uh, in America, I mean, we, we at least profess to value freedom a lot, right? Yeah. I'd say throughout history and across the world, that is not um, the value that has always been shared by every culture. But in the analysis of that, are you likely to say, well, we just got it right? Or are you likely to say, well, it's, it's something that's constructed by the society? You can't really compare the two directly against an abstract standard of what the correct societal moral beliefs were to have had. Yeah. And, but, okay, so then what do you do when people say, but your freedoms are your rights and they're inalienable and they're endowed by God and they can't? So it's. Oh, yeah. That, Once you use the God yeah. word, then it, yeah. Because, well. you know, and that's the thing too, because I mean, you could, of course, say, well, maybe it's not that we just, we figured it out first and we have it more right, but they haven't been offered a choice of freedom or, sure. you know, yeah. and so you, no, can and you, always, can, you can definitely yeah. say that. Yeah. And yeah. That, would, that would tend towards a more realist view of morality, which I think uh, to be totally transparent, I lie more on the realist side. I'm, I'm fairly uncomfortable with uh, with strong forms of relativism uh, because I think they're a little dangerous. Because they could go to such an extreme where we can say, well, in our mm -hmm. culture, that's not rape, but in this culture, right. it's not rape. Yeah. And so we have no right to judge them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's an area that I think a lot of people are uncomfortable going. Mm -hmm. Uncomfortable with that simply because of the culture I'm in. Maybe, but uh, you know, I, I think I think I believe that genocide is wrong in a way that doesn't matter if I believe it or not. Right. And certainly if you're saying something like all truth is relative, that, uh, that sounds like an absolute claim to me. Right. Yes. So if it, it's a little defeating, <laughs> if you, if you bring it to that extent, I agree with that. Um, and that is, and I was just doing really brief um, kind of like catch up on it, did the 
sure. Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy thing. But great resource. The, yeah, I know it's one of my favorite. I print off so much stuff off there. But one of the things that yeah that that I get stuck too with is if we say everything is relative, then it, you are pushing on that whole absolute thing. But what is it? It's it's the direct opposition against um, not moral skepticism. Oh, I'll have to think back about that. But I always come back to subjective and objective. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what, so relativism is a non-objectivist view, basically. Yeah. And what happens then is what, what, so you go too far extreme with that, you end up with something like what, objectivism? And right, which I think is equally, it suffers from sort of the same fatal defects. And that's what Ayn Rand philosophy was right right objectivism yeah. and i thought that was a bit extreme because it was too yeah. individualistic it had no concern yeah. for the collective whole now she called it objectivism and that's sort of the catchy like capital o objectivism yep. for what she believed but I, I don't know that there's a uh, a direct definitional link between that and just the word objective or what objective might mean mm-hmm I'd call her, I I think if you were to put a more exact term on her philosophy, it would just be sort of like a radical individualism Mm -hmm. or an immoral individualism. Which is dangerous as well. I think if I'm going to judge (laughs) philosophies, I would say, because when I, and and I mean, just to trace back, I kind of got wrapped up in her a little bit when I went from Republican to Libertarian. And sure got very persuaded by her ideas and I see a lot of those ideas along with what Adam Smith we have a lot of Adam Mm -hmm. Smith philosophy throughout right now more towards the right don't you think yeah Uh, yourself up by the bootstraps you're only responsible for yourself sure yeah although I think uh Ayn Rand tended to moralize it a little more than Adam Smith did Smith I think took the more cautious approach of just describing how market forces work and then Rand went the additional step of saying, and that's the only way anything should ever be. And if you can't survive in that, you don't deserve to, which I find false. <laughs> right. So what do you think of the way moral relativism compels people to learn tolerance? What, what is, oh, what is your problem with question. it? You know, well, I mean, that's kind of what it does, right? It's like, well, you're just going sure. to accept everything, learn your tolerance levels, but then where do we push back on that to where it does go too far into these extremes? And, and what does that mean? Are we, because my concern is, I don't want to say we shouldn't have laws, but it's like, where do we stop the, the defining of between tolerance and legislating against everything that we have now classified as immoral? Well, so you're describing a positive effect of something like relativism, which is that you're more tolerant of other people's perspectives. I, th- I just think there are better ways to achieve that, right? It's, uh, I think saying, I am tolerant of your perspective because I believe it is equally true as minus is kind of a lazy way to achieve tolerance and achieve having a difficult conversation in a respectful way. I can believe that I am right about something and you are wrong about something without thinking that that is, you know, without 
in morally indicting you on that or without trying my best to understand your perspective, if I want to have a conversation about that, I damn well better be able to articulate your view to you in a way that's satisfactory to you. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't see us doing that, though. No, people are very bad at that. <laughs> <laughs> that's not an indictment on the philosophy that they choose to subscribe to in the process of being bad at that. <laughs> Although it could be, no. <laughs> Maybe. Depends what philosophy. I, yeah, right. But you should always judge a philosophy based on the people who hold it the best. Yes, that's true. Well, and, you know, that brings up something. It seems like we can't focus too long on a good idea without thinking about the negative consequences of that idea. Right. And so it's like all these good ideas kind of get shoved aside because they could go foul. I mean, I struggle with that with eroticism and with trying to work out like some kind of an erotic theology. As soon as you even use that term, people are like sex and sex is bad and all the bad things that that and you're like, right. <laughs> but if well, you'd so be willing to, yeah, if you'd be willing to open your eyes to the possibility, though, if you just looked at the positive result that could come from understanding this and implementing this or whatever it is, but yeah, we focus too much on the negative potential consequence. We like to presuppose how horrible it can be. Sure, which isn't to say that caution is always inadvisable. But yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I foreclose on skepticism, a is, right? Yeah. You shouldn't foreclose on conversations about a philosophy for the simple reason that it's dangerous. You can say, I don't like it because it's dangerous, but there should be a moratorium on the discussion of it or the consideration of it, certainly. Mm. Well, why aren't you organizing that? I got kids. (laughs) (laughs) You can Zoom it now, like at 8 p.m. That's true. That's true. I'm profoundly free at 8 p.m. I often choose to use that time for you know, Netflix. Other yeah, those sorts of things. What are you watching? I was gonna say I was gonna say uh, waste of time, but it's keeping me a little bit sane. Uh, <laughs> did you watch the Tiger King? By no, the way? I won't. I, I so mm-hmm. I've watched like half of it, and I I understand why it's uh, why it's not good journalism, but it's very entertaining. <laughs> I get why people like stuff like that. There's a highly addictive quality. Yeah, and there's a lot of, I mean, reality TV, scripted TV. People mm-hmm. love that stuff, and that's cool. And I mean, I did too. I was, I grew up with the real world, right? Like that yeah. was my show. And I, I did The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and Bachelor in Paradise mm-hmm. too. And I've watched Real Housewives and all that stuff. But yeah, sometimes I just think no. No, it's too much, and I don't like the influence. I don't like the expectation it creates for society because you see this, and even though you know it's fake, you then expect that to play out in your own real life. I mean, so many people do, and it's just like, well, I don't like this kind of way that it influences, so I'm not going to participate in it by giving it views, and that's just sure. do what you want, and... Not only that, I, I'm really bad at watching any TV because I am psychologically analyzing or trying sure. to relate it to some social experiment, and I'm just annoying, and I need a notepad when I'm watching stuff, and so I'm boring right now in this phase of my life. I used to watch That's good fair. stuff. That's Although I like how to get away with murder. Yeah. 
So. Oh yeah, my wife was watching that show. I, mm. I vaguely heard some parts of it. it seemed interesting. Um, yeah, that's a very principled approach to not <laughs> not glorify the things you don't think should be perpetuated with uh, with views. I'm all about glorifying the consumerism aimed at buying books. However, sure, yeah, so I do a lot of audio and, books these days. Yeah, and I like to read, so I'm just I'm a reader more than a TV watcher. So, yeah. well, it's entertaining to read, I think. So, well, what stood out the most to you when you were doing um, whatever research you did leading up to this conversation you mentioned? Uh, um, I guess just trying to figure out kind of where my own philosophies lie. I wasn't really sure. And maybe I have a, I have a little bit of relativist in me, but at the same time, I do have kind of concrete fundamental moral standards that I'll, I won't, won't say are, are not true because I just, right. You know, um, and I don't think a difference in those fundamental morals has to be a reason for people to not you know, have any kind of a connection or relationship either. And I think that is my concern is when we break down to what we value and what we don't value or what we hold as moral and and what have you, it seems like those, those foundations can break us apart instead of just teaching us how to live in a harmony and tolerance with the differing views. Although, you know, I, I also see that I could probably in some regards be considered a skeptical relevant to this. Is that what it is? A moralist. And I'm very skeptical. I don't believe anything right away until it's believable. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, that's how you should be. If you see an article that says a study says this, you should find the link and read it. Yes. Yes. I want to see the physical study. That's Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly right. And I wonder why so many people skip those steps and It is. And I think we like, and I said this to my daughter today and I was joking kind of, but not really. And I know I probably sound snobby saying it, but I said, I feel like the more I learn, the more I realize how dumb everybody is. And I wish I would have stayed dumber and more unaware and more because it's because then you're like, look at all of this information that's available to me. It's obviously got to be available to you too. Why are you not, you know, and it's, frustrating for us to understand why people aren't seeking in the same manner that we are. But I think it's safer to be in that spot of unconsciousness. And I I feel lucky that I have the margin in my life mentally and emotionally and physically to be able to engage in research that isn't related to the need that's like right in front of my face. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm in a place where I can I can sit down and read an you know an article on the Stanford Philosophy Encyclopedia for an hour and it's not gonna mess with my ability to meet any of my basic needs. Yeah. I think one one area I'd like to go is strictly speaking, right? Realism and relativism are two ways of talking about what is true, what what makes something true. Now the other side of this coin is whether or not we have any ability at all to know that. Mm. So I'd say where I land, I am a moral realist in the sense that I think that right and wrong probably exist. I'm also kind of pessimistic about my ability to know for sure what it is. Mm. Right. I don't think we have very strong access to it. 
And that is, I think, a good place to sort of hold that uncertainty and be able to respect the positions of others. Yeah, I like that. But uncertainty is scary for a lot of people. Mm-hmm, it is. And I think a lot of people are profoundly insecure in their own beliefs. I, this, this has been a book idea that's been rattling around in my head for years now. Epistemic insecurity. So epistemic loosely meaning having to do with beliefs, right? But I think the majority of people, while we feel like we're pretty secure in our beliefs, we feel pretty confident about our beliefs, we are so profoundly insecure about the things that we believe that the scariest thing in the world to us is somebody who is smart and well-intentioned and believes the exact opposite of what we do. Mm -hmm. We see so many people resorting to, you know, I have to believe that anyone who disagrees with me is either evil, stupid, or both. Because I can't imagine anything scarier than that not being true. Because that might mean that I'm wrong. Yes. How to deal with that. <laughs> I think that's where we live most of the time. It really is. Yeah. Why? That's so crazy. So, not that I like scapegoating, but do you see any kind of influences that create this kind of expectation to be certain in what we think? I mean, do you think there are bigger forces that manipulate or persuade or influence us in a way that we could be more aware of? I mean, what, what, what was it for you that kept you asking questions and paying attention to the things that weren't being said? And what, what keeps you driving towards understanding more? Uh, I would like to say that it's just a genuine love for the pursuit of knowledge, but realistically, I was pretty bored for a lot of my life, and it's really fun to think about. (laughs) Um, I, I, I would agree with you if it weren't for the fact that I think this pattern has been going on for all of human history. So I don't think that we are, I don't think we're alone in that sort of pattern of behavior. You can see it play out in, uh, you know, in Greek philosophical texts from 3,000 years ago. Yeah. We were still asking the same questions and mm-hmm. we still, and still getting just as mad at people who didn't agree with us. Yeah. Yeah. To the point of death. Interesting yeah. how we do that. Mm-hmm. Uh. Nothing new here. Do you think, okay. So just curious, we'll, we'll play the Trump stuff. Oh boy. Do, well, I'm just curious if you see any. What do you think the Trump base overreaching philosophy is? Like, what, what do you see with them? Loyalty. Loyalty. Yeah, loyalty to a person that has come to represent a set of ideas and attacks on that person who has come to represent a set of ideas register emotionally as attacks on those ideas. Mm. Right. Not that that's unique to one political leader or movement. No, I think we see loyalty on yeah. both sides. I'll, tre- I'll tread lightly there, but it's, yeah, loyalty, I think, is the predominant ethical consideration I see happening. Loyalty mm. to a group and to a leader. Hmm. And do you think it's a it's a protective mechanism? Possibly. Yeah. Um, could be protectionary, could be performative. Uh, 
feels good to be part of a group, right? Yeah. I just started reading this book by Michael Kimmel called Angry White Men. I haven't read it, but I saw your post about it. <laughs> I have to make fun of him. I mean, because he is an angry white man. Right. Anyway, yes. Um, but, but being a hypocrite does not always make somebody wrong. It just makes them more annoying. That's true. That's true. And I mean, we're all hypocritical from time to time. Right. Sometimes we don't know it. Yes. But what's, yes. what his aim is, at he's really trying to understand not necessarily Trump supporters, although I think it's geared at Trump supporters, because there was just sure. like this sociological meltdown. You know, people are like, trying what to understand the movements. Trying to understand right. this change in movement. And I, and I really think that's what he's trying to do. But um, it's interesting that now, I mean, on the, on the heels of the next election, it feels like people are mm-hmm. like, oh, wait, we should try and understand these people. And see, well, you know, where their 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 loyalties lie. Well, they're certainly and, not going anywhere. No. What do you mean? Well, they're certainly not going anywhere. So it would probably pay to understand oh. a large portion of your, you know. Yeah, yeah. And to just what happened and what made all this these changes and influences over this space of people that felt like this was a do or die moment for them or something. So. I, you know, yeah. I like reading people that I don't like. But, that yeah, makes sense. As well you, know? you should, yes. Um, because I think that helps me force myself to be willing to understand their position. And mm-hmm. if I do want to criticize their position, I want to do it intellectually mm-hmm. and not, you know, well, you're stupid. It's because right. you drive a Ford. Um, I want, it, <laughs> but I do realize too that my my perspective is limited and, He's on the other side of the coin. He is a white man. I will allow him his white manness. Sure. To share with yeah. me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I wish more people would be willing to do that. Like, so I watch both of the oppositional mainstream media. Like, I will watch a little CNN here, a little MSNBC here, a little Fox News here, and I do a little. Sure. Uh, Bill Maher, even though he's not really news, but I like him. And then some Glenn Beck and I try and, yeah, yeah, um, he is funny. Well, I don't know. Some of us, he's lonely right now, recording out of his, recording out of his little house, having to be secluded, not being able to be on stage. And it is crazy watching TV shows happen. Didn't they just do Saturday Night Live from video or something i didn't see that but if they did that would be great i was just going uh, yeah and tom hanks hosted from his kitchen oh hey, that's a good <laughs> god he didn't die <laughs> nah he is but they they give all the good stuff to the the famous people that influence us first you know that yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what true. the conspiracies tell us ah yes well, what do the conspiracies tell you it's just what economics tells you, right? They That's, kinda... yeah. <laughs> Rich man gets what he wants first, and then if there's any leftover for us. If you own a yacht, you're probably not going to die from the virus. Probably. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so post office. Oh, boy. Okay. Let's see. We are, we are now treading into territory where I want to... Uh, had the disclaimer that uh, I'm just a guy with a mouth here, not 
<laughs> oh, me too. I'm just a person some, with a mouth. I have some amount of expertise in the the moral relativism, moral realism area. No amount of expertise in the logistics of uh, the post office. Well, no. And so here's why I bring it back <laughs> up. And yeah. So I think because I saw myself, it felt conflicted for me to say the post office should fail. And then I had a conversation with a friend where I was like, I hate what's going on right now, but I understand why the businesses are being bailed out. Like, I hate to see Amazon bailed out. I hate to see Boeing bailed out. Like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. But it's hard not but to. But you get it because of the results. Mm. But it's not only that, because I, is again, I don't like scapegoating, but my husband presented this idea that like, but the government is responsible for the shutting the things down, for closing off the airlines and as a direct result they suffered because of the government's actions we sure. have to hold the government accountable and as much as i i agree with that and i'm willing to like shift my beliefs on you know being financially conservative um i felt like sure. i was maybe that was contradictory to what i was saying about you were, the post you were office. swayed by a principle that you could get on board with yeah which and was accountability yeah, accountability is number one for me. So what I'm hearing from you is that you're highly motivated by adherence to principles morally. Mm -hmm. I, am, I am towards the opposite of that spectrum. I am highly motivated by results, right? Which can you, can, you can say that that resembles like saying the ends justify the means, which I would say sometimes right? If the means are, are, you know, horrendous, if it, the means are an atrocity, no, but I'm a utilitarian, right? So nine out of 10 times, I'm going to break a principle to get a better overall result, right? So if, so you could tell me that the post office for the last hundred years was taking every dollar that they took in and just burning it and laughing at the fact but I would still say that the result of, of a gap in mail delivery service is something I want to avoid. Yes. So because of the result, I'm going to advocate for the bailout, despite it breaking a principle or ostensibly breaking a principle. Yeah. That is, that is the fundamental moral place that I'm coming from, that I am more interested in the result, that you may not come from that place. and that is the underpinnings of a ton of different disagreements that we have. It goes back to what we were saying earlier about how really it's just two or three big disagreements. Yeah. Well, it, in a variety. Of. Yeah. And I don't take so much that results-based or utilitarian approach. It, yeah. it was, it was intimate for me for a moment where I went, Oh, and it was when my mail lady was delivering my packages to me. She bring, you know, we have a little mailbox. It's at quarter mile away from the, the house the end of a long gravel mm -hmm. driveway when the packages are too big, she drives them up to the house every day and I'm an Amazon freak. So this woman mm -hmm. is always carrying me packages. And <laughs> for a minute it hit me. I was like, I wouldn't see her anymore and she'd be out of a job. And so for me, issue, it was the individual yeah. thing. All of a sudden it connected for me. And I went back to that post where I was like, Oh, this post office, let it fail. Da 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 da. And I was like, ah, but then I, I let that closely. Huh? Yeah, and uh, she wouldn't have a job. So the, yeah. And so, so the issue became was, personal for you. The issue moved personal. from your out group to your in group. 
And that's what always happens. That makes me change my mind. That's what it was mm-hmm. with my daughter coming out as queer. And I was not okay with gay at all. And it was a personal moment for me. It was a personal transformation. And so I, you can see it on a utilitarian view. Mm-hmm. That results matter and results provide benefit and well-being for people. Whereas I need to be more directly confronted. Sure. In that instance. I think that's a very common psychological yeah. thing. Um, you've read Joshua Green, right? I'm not familiar with the name. So he, uh, he is this theory. And I, I'm forgetting right now what the essay or the book was called. And I might butcher this uh, thesis, but... The idea is that utilitarianism and more principle-based ethics are not just opposing philosophies. They're two different psychological modes that we have that we use on our in-group and our out-group, right? People People whose names we know, we are more likely to apply moral principles to when making decisions about them. People whose names we don't know, who are just statistics to us, we're more, much more likely to apply utilitarian ethics to. And that's just seems psychologically true and, and evidentially true. That's fascinating, actually. Yeah. How yeah. People know that. Typically, no. People don't know how they think. <laughs> this is inference. See, I'm always, I'm always just, I'm always just blown away sometimes with philosophy, especially. Because I come mm-hmm. to the newer understanding and I'm like, oh my gosh, I so get people just a little bit more. And I can't help but wonder why philosophy isn't like required like kindergarten on up because could you imagine, could you imagine little philosophers like mm. your twins? Oh, geez. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I do too. Philosophy is like a the number one curriculum in this house. Every, if you can't mm-hmm. see philosophy in everything you're doing, you're doing it wrong. And right, it matters too. It do, yeah. Yeah, it does. And I love that. The ch- and my kids have made me understand the philosophical concepts that I couldn't relate to until it was almost like worked out through some kind of action that my kids did. And I know a lot of people don't do that, but like, just, you know, when, uh, something like I say, can you feel yourself sitting on the chair? No. Huh. What if you focus yeah, I see on, what you did. yeah. And then I'll say, you know, focus on what it feels like to sit on the chair and you know, okay, now describe it to me. And he describes it to me, my son. And I'll say, you know, things like, well, why didn't you realize what it felt like? Why didn't you feel it before? I wasn't paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. And it's just like little moments like that. For me, they go, oh, connect to here. Do you remember that? This maps out somewhere in my head. And it's like, ah, it was a concept I was trying to figure out that unlocked a problem I was having over an argument that was taking place with some person. And it's like, sure. Oh, that sounds a little neurotic too, now that I just... No, I, I think that's a, it's a very normal phenomenon. A lot of things are connected in our minds, and particularly things like what you described, sensory experience and meditative experiences can um, be strong memory triggers. That's probably why they're what, utilizing meditation more and more with, with trauma and grief yeah. counseling. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. With mm-hmm. Uh, the memory aspects. Yeah. And this just kind of really hits for me because I want more and more philosophical discussions and I really want yeah. to break down philosophical concepts for people because I think it's important to help us. I think it will help us learn how to have better conversations. Sure. So. Yeah. Well, that's super important, right? Like the, the way we talk about things is a bit of a lost art right now. Yeah. Right. Particularly with our ability to curate who we talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, and really surround ourselves with primarily people who we completely agree with. Yeah. Um, I was just yeah. my wife about this, uh, about how uh, interacting only with people you agree with is a really great way to believe things terribly, right? Because you're never challenged on anything. You never have to unpack what's behind what you believe the way that we just did. Yeah. Yeah, you never have to call up to apologize for the hope mm-hmm. that you have. If I'm going to butcher a Bible verse there, whatever Paul says, we should always be ready to stand and explain Except why everything we we've said. Yeah. have the hope that we do. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that is, yeah. Someone threw a Bible verse at me today just as a, like, this is my explanation. And I'm like, come on. Oh, proof texting? Yeah, cherry picking, this is the verse. And then it's like, if you, and that, I think that's my biggest, biggest grievance with people when, when we do that is they're just, they throw a verse down or they throw an an entire article down, read this. I have literally read the same book with my husband and gotten a completely different view than he did. Sure. And we argued about it because I'm like, how do you get that? Did you read the same, you know, and it was, I think it was like a six week argument because I'm like, I don't understand how we can read the same book and not, and that was around the the same conclusions. And that was around the time we were like, we were inviting the Jehovah witnesses over every week for coffee. And they were like, Oh, we're going to teach you how to read the Bible. And we're like, yeah, let's play along with this. This is fun. Yeah. And then we were like, holy shit, how did we read the same book and not get the same result? And I'm like, duh, you know, and it was just a moment like that. We were, I was like, duh, no wonder everyone fights over the Bible. We read the same damn book and everybody gets it. Well, sometimes we have different translations of that book that pander to to what we already believe. Yep. And we insert words that didn't exist. Right. Like homosexual. Right. Point that out. That was was cleverly snuck in there what in the 70s no, that, what was the uh, what was the one that's uh, i'm blanking on the actual greek word but yeah the uh, um the one that paul uses uh that gets translated homosexual i think most people think that he it was a uh, a word he invented mm. right? and loosely translates something like you probably know more about it than i do I can't think of the word. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. I have a book about it that yeah. argues that exact idea. Yeah, it's in a book called Heretic by sure. Matthew Di Stefano. Oh. I know he breaks that down. I know uh, there's someone else out there. I can't think of the name who has. Uh, I have the blog saved, so maybe I can pull it up. Who has a really good breakdown of the the translation? And when it was like first introduced as a word to add into the Bible and what previous translations were tried to use to qualify it as Mm -hmm. some kind of late entry or I don't, 
There's so many stories behind. Now, we're here, we're at, here we are at another thing that I'm far from an expert on, but what it does tell you is that translation or transliteration, uh, translational choices and text criticism is really nuanced and there's a lot of ways to get to a lot of conclusions. Yeah, yeah. Which is enough of an argument for me against proof texting, like mm-hmm. slapping a verse on a comment and then leaving. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I feel the same about memes even. Someone will share a meme oh, sure. and I'll ask like a million <laughs> questions about it. What do you and mean by this? And then people are like, it's not that deep. And I'm like, but it should be. It's a meme. It's supposed to be an idea that's worthy of being repeated and shared. And I don't understand it. Or if you ask someone, and what does that mean to you? Well, what do you mean? What does it mean to me? Like, sure. Well, I don't understand. It feels like it's just like an antagonistic action to ask a question or to say, I don't know what you mean. Can you explain? Or can you tell me in a different way? Because I'm just not getting it. And that seems to be more offensive than going, I disagree with you. You know who came up with the word meme? Richard Dawkins. Yeah, Dawkins, meme theory. Yeah, like it's uh, just the unit of cultural transmission or whatever. Yeah, the good ideas continue to be passed on and the bad ideas die. Right. Except yeah. with memes of the 21st century. The right, well now it means something there. completely different. <laughs> yeah, I know. I remember when memes were a thing, I was like, isn't this some kind of evolutionary? <laughs> yeah, is this social, social Darwinism? What is this? <laughs> and I sat there and I watched, I think, a whole week of Dawkins trying to understand how the two related. Dawkins is he is a brilliant guy and a great example of you can be an expert in one thing right and and kind of I won't say bumbling idiot in another but is like he is a luminescent biologist yeah and and a very careless theologian (laughs) right yes it's, he's fascinating to me because listening to him talk about evolution is, is staggering. Yeah, right. I agree. I agree. And, and listening, and, and if you've read the book, The God Delusion, it's... I have it, yeah. Yeah, it, it reads like, like an angsty 10th grader. Yeah, and I say this often about... I won't say it about Sam Harris because mm, he's in a different kind of realm for me as far as atheists go. But as far as Dawkins and his atheism, I can just easily go, he got bad theology. That's his problem. Right. Yeah. And he's been hinging on this for what, 30 years. It's like, move on. We're all, we all deconstructed that fiery, wrathful shit. Get over it. You know, because that's the thing I see him and Maher too. And I'm like, you have bad theology, but you hinge right. so much of your identity on this. Now I get it. Your identity's mm-hmm. hinged on it. You can't separate from it now because of cancel culture, but it is. He's he's brilliant. He's His work has been extremely helpful in eroticism for me. Really? Yeah. I mean, just, ha- you know, because there are so, it seems like no matter how far you dig back, you have to dig back to evolutionary biology. And I mean, even bringing that up with a lot of people, they're like, well, I don't believe in evolution. And I'm like, I don't really care if you do or not the findings. Oh, so you're a realist. (laughs) Maybe. 
I, you know, I don't understand why people need to care whether or not it's real. Like, right. just yeah. believe what you want to believe about that, but also acknowledge what kind of benefit that information is to humanity because it is, because it forces us to look, especially in the animal kingdom and come back and compare it to us as humans to see how we differentiate and how we're different. Yeah. And extraordinary predictive value. Exactly. Right, all the time. Yes. And that's that's one of the that's a great argument for realism in science and math is that like we did a how did we get to the moon, right? They did a lot of math and then surprise, surprise, they didn't miss it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. the same thing with evolutionary biology, there's a lot of science that goes into it and it, it has had, you know, there were predictions that were made and those predictions were matched by the results. And here we are. And in so many regards, too, if you want to look at the Bible more meta metaphorical instead of literally, is that I see too much of science cooperating. I mean, even Genesis, if you take sure, it. There's all kinds of different genres in there. Yeah, because if you take the poetics of it yeah. and you lay it down, I mean, so much can be laid down next to quantum physics and go look at, you know, what Isaiah talks about here is, and there are, um, what's his name, Plantinga, Plantinga. Plantinga. That's his name. He yes. intertwines He's great. science and theology in a really brilliant way. But do not watch him when you're already sleepy because his voice will lull you into dreamland. <laughs> is this? So he is uh, probably the most well-known Christian apologist in like serious philosophical and logical circles. Um, he's got this. Alvin, right? Did I? Yeah. Yeah, Alvin Plantinga, and he's he's got this wonderful. Uh, sort of modal it's called the modal ontological arguments and it's this this fascinating and nuanced argument from uh, probability or possibility and necessity uh, to get to the existence of God um, and so he's super well known for this super well known for his uh, his books on on uh, warranted belief um, and there's this I say all this just to get to something funny which is that there's this clip that goes around that's kind of shared uh, in philosophy circles of him being interviewed uh, at his home in Florida, I think it was. And there was a power outage and his air conditioner had gone out and a local reporter was just interviewing him. Alvin Plantinga, you know, local resident, he's just talking about his how his AC is out and it sucks because it's hot. <laughs> and that's like the one time he's been on TV. <laughs> <laughs> What are you known for? My air conditioner yeah. broke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was on the TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was, yeah, that, he was my introduction into apologetics. And, uh, yeah, I love that. And when I was trying to repeat a lot of what he was saying to some more evangelical people, they were like, what are you saying? Stop that nonsense. And I just... Mm -hmm. That was, and I can't believe it took me so long to see that because for so much of my life, I was so far removed from those arguments, especially within church circles and theology. When I finally got into it, I was kind of, I had to step back and I'm like, are people really like this? Do people really hate each other based on ideologies and different ways to, uh, I just, it blew my mind. And then it made me realize like, wow, you've really not been paying attention, Danielle. You know, I was kind of must have been off in La La Land. Mm -hmm. But it was, it's been the hardest part for me, even 
doing what I'm doing now is so many people aren't willing to come and talk because association means something or your name next to my name means something sure. or yeah. your belief means I condone your belief and I affirm your belief. And Oh man, it's so ridiculous. Which, all of which are trivially false, but that's okay. But I mean, that's perpetuated in the media, right? Like, I mean, I've heard people say things like I won't go on this platform or I won't speak with this person because that will make you think that I, like Donald Trump or Fox News or that I support Pelosi. And it's like, or it just means you're trying to figure see, out more. Information. Yeah. I see politicians acting that way mm-hmm. um, more than I see regular people acting that way, I guess, just because there is that aspect of, was it like, you know, Barack Obama seen shaking hands with this person. Yeah. All right. Who were they in a room together? Did anybody have the virus? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what do you think we do with that? We, I mean, everything is in quick little, you know, seven second media bites and sound bites. What do you think we do with that? I mean, how do we correct that? This guilt by association or affirmation by association? What do you, how do we push back against that? That is tough. What do you do? What do you do? (laughs) Together, like, okay, so what's going on right now in, I think in Twitter, I saw something like fire Fauci was trending. I have no idea why either. I haven't looked into Mm -hmm. it, but. Seems to me like he knows what he's talking about. But again, I'm not a, I'm not a viral pathologist, right? But so some pictures are circulating with him with George Soros and Bill Gates and Clinton's. And so I I love conspiracies as much as the next person. But where do we draw the line where we don't just assume the first image is representative of a deeper conspiracy? Yeah, I would I would dismiss images like that as as just I mean, if, if someone is at a high enough level like uh, the amount of people that the Clintons know or would be or or be considered associates is probably a hundred times more than like the amount of people that I've met. <laughs> so it's a Clinton associate, which one of the hundreds of thousands? It, you can get a picture of anybody famous with anybody else famous. That's true. That's true. To me, right? So what do you think? Do you think we we count coincidences until we can build some kind of theory or should we focus on something else altogether? Well, I, I think that's the reason that um, the best way I've heard it said was that the plural form of the word anecdote is not data, right? So you can come up, you can, you can stack up a bunch of coincidences, but until, but that's not the scientific method, right? <laughs> the scientific method is hypothesis, test, result. Yeah. Right? Like you have to actually, you have to observe what you're alleging. Mm. That's my loose way of talking about conspiracy. I'm more interested in the psychology behind conspiracy theories than I am how we might prove them true or false. And my primary thinking about that is that uh, it's, we, we prefer nefarious order to, to chaos, right? Even, even evil order, right? Like our brains are so wired to see, patterns and to prefer order and hate chaos 
that uh, I, we'd all much prefer to believe that, and that something that seems chaotic is actually the result of something that's ordered and and has bad intentions. Hmm, that's interesting. And someone who can't stand even leaving my paperwork out overnight, I do get that. I I want yeah. order too, but right. There's beauty in chaos. There is yes. poetry and music. Or not to our primate, like, or not to our mammalian brain, right? Yeah. <laughs> Evolution. Oh. <laughs> so, speaking of parts of brain, I'm torn on this. Do you think there are two parts or three parts? Do we have a dual, like, a two-part brain, or do we have a tripart brain? Are you talking about like Plato right now, or? N- well, oh, that's interesting. No. Okay. So I've been following someone who does this kind of whole like neurological, psychological entanglement with revelations and chakras and looking at things. No, when I said mammalian brain, that was just my, that was just Well, no, but you brought up an interesting part. Referring to to basic instincts. (laughs) No, but you brought up an interesting thing. Some people insist that we only have like this two parts of our brain. We have a right brain and a left brain right? Oh, sure. And then other people. So in just areas I've dug around into insist there is in fact three parts to the brain slash psyche, but I think they're differentiated. Anyway, I'm just curious. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, I don't, I know barely anything about neuroscience. Mm. Um, me too. I just have started but, to it. What I could ask you is, do you think that the, that the mind and the brain are the same thing? No. Okay, so you're a dualist. You think that brain activity that you can measure is, is not the same thing as the mental activity you experience. It's just a reflection of it. Hmm. Am I a dualist, though, if I try to reject as much dualism as I can? Sure. Well, a mind-body dualist. Well... But I suggest a distinction between mind and body. Yeah. So, like, are the is the mind a different? Well, where's the spirit? Well, I uh, you can lump that into mind. Your your experience of the world, right? Okay. Yeah, I would say that I'm a dualist in that regard. Sure. The mind yeah. is separate from the brain. Most people who are into anything religious or spiritual are. Yeah. Are you? Uh, I feel like there's some. I. I I, I don't know. I feel like I am conscious and that is something apart from just physical. So I'd say yes, tentatively yes, but I don't have anything to back that up. So, but you're not spiritual. Well, are I'd you? say I am. Do you yeah. believe in God? Yeah, I am a Christian. Oh, you are? Yeah. I never, I was something that me and my husband and I think you're friends with my daughter on Facebook too. Yeah. We all are like, that they, we asked the question, is he a Christian? And I'm like, I don't know. I, am, I really yeah. don't know, which is fine either way. Yeah. Um, I think I just, we've never gotten into that. Maybe we have an yeah, idea. I, I, I don't, um, I don't post a lot on Facebook, so I mainly comment on other people's posts. <laughs> well, don't you know what you do post on Facebook identifies you anyway. So you're already reduced down to whatever you post. Right. I think yes. actually it is listed on my Facebook that my. Oh, are, well, that goes. There to you show. have it. I am <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a Christian and probably a dualist. Yeah. So, what do you think about non-dualism? 
the idea that the mind and the brain are the same thing. I don't think it explains very well the fact that wherever I go, there I am. I'm here, right? <laughs> and that's like something and not nothing. I think therefore I am. So Descartes would agree and probably Buddhist philosophers would disagree. Yeah. That's a different conversation for a different time. <laughs> it is. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I stopped Buddhism was it was depersonalized. Sure, which is either demoralizing or relieving, depending on who you are. Right? Yeah, it could be. But I'm a relational kind of gal, so I need right. a relational kind of God. Well, yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. a relational God. Yeah. I am interviewing um, a theologian who writes about a relational God on Wednesday, Thomas Who's, J. Ord. I have not heard that name. He just, he wrote a book in 2018 called God Can't. He talks about a relational and bodiless God, a universal God. Okay. And talks about God's uncontrolling love. And he has a very interesting take on what that uncontrolling love looks like. Okay. I'll have to listen. Yeah. I'll have to listen too and make sure it sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully you can get something out of this. Chop it up. I'm I am trying to get something out of this. He wrote something about an agape theology and I said, Do you have an Eros theology? He said sure. I did. I said, Will you come on my show and talk to me about it? He said, Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just trying to learn a little bit more from different views yeah. and different lenses of Eros, because man, this sure. is a bitch of a topic to get into. Yeah, well, it's 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 stigmatized, certainly. Yes, it probably doesn't deserve. Yes, it, and it's a relegated form of love, and it's secondary, and yeah, it's a word. That Where I'm, do you think that comes from? The, that it's secondary. Um, Anders Nygren. Anders Nygren, he broke down the distinction between philia, eros, and agape. And agape is the highest form of Christian love. It is the love of, it's God's love. Love of Christ, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm totally, it's kenosis. It's a self-emptying love. It's self-sacrificial. Right. It's a healing love. But I see too much that points us towards understanding that Jesus also demonstrated Eros love and filial love. And so to, yeah. I don't like the hierarchy that it's been arranged. Yeah. Because sure. I think love is dimensional and those are three dimensions. And, you know, we like three in Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, yeah, I want to kind of elevate Eros and eroticism because I think it's important. I think it's a fundamental right. application of intimacy and connection. So. Right, which is, which is holy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All love is holy. Agreed. Okay. Yeah. Good for me there. And that's the absolute truth. <laughs> yeah, or relatively speaking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> we have to do this again we'll have to figure yeah. out a new topic and talk about absolutely it. I no i am happy to like this, this is this the uh, most fun you can have sitting at a desk i agree i agree and you can entertain and encourage other people so it's beneficial for the well-being of all yeah absolutely and so 
think uh, my takeaway here is keep uh, keep talking with people that you disagree with because it is possibly the most helpful thing you can do for your beliefs and for theirs. I agree. I'll keep doing it. Thank awesome. you, Sam, Thanks, so much Danielle. for that.